What's up? I'm Alex Clark, and you're listening to the audio version of my show, Politics, powered by Turning Point USA. To fully experience the conservatee, make sure you're following the show at our home base on Instagram, where we post our episodes daily at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Okay, cute servatives, let the games begin. I wish that I could say American government overreach stopped with Ruby Ridge. That perhaps the FBI, ATF, and other government entities learned a lesson when the Weaver family's experience on the mountaintop came to a fatal end. But that wasn't the case at all. So today I'm back with yet another American story of government power gone wrong when innocent Americans, literally children, paid the cost of government overreach with their lives. Let's step away from the mountain in Idaho and head far south to Waco, Texas, not even one year after the Ruby Ridge siege. Waco is a small town located in central Texas with green grassy plains and a quiet American feel. Before Joanna Gaines rebranded the town with her Magnolia Market and Keith Raniere brought addictive cult stories back to our living rooms, there was David Koresh, a notorious American cult leader and a very different Waco, Texas. What transpired in the all-American town was a moment that would haunt modern American history forever. It redefined how society sees religious extremism here at home and how we talk about the idea of a cult. More importantly, it highlighted a dark reality that not even the freest society is exempt from, government overreach. I'm Alex Clark, and this is Waco Siege, religion, cults, and tragedy in Texas. The Waco siege lasted 51 days, but the religious sect that came to be known as a cult in the 90s had been around for more than 50 years. Let's go all the way back to the 1930s when an immigrant named Victor Hutef broke away from Seventh-day Adventist theology and formed a group called the Davidians. He believed that he was destined to be part of a kingdom during an apocalypse that was guaranteed to occur. The kingdom, he argued, would be like the Davidic kingdom in the Bible. In preparation for the end of the world, he bought a compound in Waco, Texas and called it Mount Carmel, prophesying that it would be the very site of the post-apocalyptic kingdom. If this isn't a Power trip, I don't know what is. Under Hotep, the Davidians functioned semi-communally. They stuck to themselves as much as possible and worked together to sustain the community by farming and constructing their own buildings, electrical, telephone services, sewage, and water systems. They all put their work, time, and money into this place, all because they believed their leader was this Christ-like figure who was going to lead them through the end times. Spoiler alert, the world did not end, but their world sorta did when Hotep died in 1955. This meant that a whole new power trip had room to arise, despite the fact that Hotep's widow, Florence, was sort of in charge for a second. A man named Benjamin Roden had been a follower of Hotep's and saw this opportunity before him. He pushed his way into power by claiming that God himself was talking to him and formed what we know as the Branch Davidians. Not all of the group was okay with this, but Hotep's widow was making outlandish claims too. She said that the whole world would end in 1959, but she was also wrong. Florence ultimately left the group, which allowed Rodin and his few followers to break off and form the Branch Davidians after Rodin declared himself to be what the group actually needed, a message that didn't necessarily resonate with everyone. Still, he deemed himself the leader and then claimed the property New Mount Carmel. Eventually, he died, so the group was taken over by his widow, Lois, and son, George. Their authority, however, was short-lived. In 1983, a controversial man named Vernon Howell joined the group. Let's do a quick mini deep dive into this guy, shall we? 
Vernon was born to a single teenage mother in Houston, Texas in 1959. His childhood was difficult and he was raised primarily by his grandparents. At an early age, he was introduced to the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. As a young man, he reportedly believed that God had spoken to him, saying that he was God's chosen Messiah. Before he turned 18, Vernon had memorized the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. However, his intrigue with the Bible and his church attendance didn't keep him from having problems in the church itself. Vernon ended up falling out with church leaders after he aggressively pursued the daughter of a pastor. Random fact, but he also attempted to become a rock star in Los Angeles before finding his way back to the church. So he left Los Angeles and returned to Texas and made his way to Waco. By then, he'd given up his dream of being a rock star and claimed to be a prophet instead. But conflict with leadership was still a character trait of his. Remember, Benjamin Roden had died, leaving the Branch Davidian congregation to Lois and George Roden. Then Vernon showed up, and of course, he was as power hungry as ever, and he didn't hold back from confronting the group. Naturally, he found a rival in George Roden. Allegedly, Vernon had an affair with Lois, which could not have helped George's feelings towards Vernon at all. In the meantime, he was forming his own group of Branch Davidian followers. Still, that wasn't enough. They want absolute power. Remember, he thought of himself as the Messiah. There was no room for two, just him. And he needed to build up his own army of followers. Nothing could stand in his way. Even early on, it's clear now that he had a belief in violence as an answer for achieving what he wanted. Tensions between Vernon and George mounted so high that in 1987, they had a shootout, which resulted in attempted murder charges against Vernon and some of his supporters and accomplices. They were eventually acquitted due to a mistrial, and George was eventually found guilty of murder for an entirely different altercation. In 1990, Vernon changed his name to David Koresh, the name that ultimately would be made infamous by the entire world. Maybe some of you have heard the name before today. Interesting fact that shows just how narcissistic this guy was, the name he chose reflects King David and King Cyrus from the Bible. Cyrus equals Koresh. This ties back into the original Davidic kingdom intrigue that the group had way before Koresh came along. One report emphasized the importance of this name change. The idea of the Davidic kingdom meant something to the Branch Davidian followers, and it was actually very manipulative of Koresh to change his name to something that word for word ties into the belief system. It even says that this distinction between Koresh and the Branch Davidians makes the argument that the two were and are separate things. It's what separates the idea of religion in cult. Koresh led the group commune style. They lived isolated and under the belief that the world was ending and he was leading them through it. Anything beyond the community was bad. They all lived and worked together on 77 acres in a building where the men slept on one floor and the women slept separately on another floor with Koresh. He regarded himself as the sinful messiah since the Christ before him had been perfect. Koresh felt that by being a sinful messiah, he could relate to people more. He also believed that any child he fathered would be sacred. He he used the teachings of spiritual weddings to justify sleeping with any woman he wanted. One former member named Grace Adams claimed that women needed to sleep with David in order to make it to heaven. It's reported that he fathered over 20 children, primarily with women who weren't his wife, Raish. The men were not exempt from Koresh's rules and were ordered to be celibate. The one major factor that separated Koresh from Hotep and Rodin was his intrigue with weapons and even violence. His predecessors led commune style, but they'd been pacifists. I'm not sure how they 
prepared for the apocalypse they preached about, but Koresh and his followers stockpiled ammo and weapons. Okay, pause. You have to wonder, how many faux apocalyptic aficionados was it gonna take to get this group to understand that the world wasn't ending any time in the 20th century? Still, the Davidians continued their weapon collection, and eventually, someone took notice. That someone was Larry Gilbreth, who worked as the UPS deliveryman to the compound. Larry made so many trips to the Branch Davidian compound that they became familiar faces to him. In order to access the property to make the deliveries, he had to go through a checkpoint, which was, of course, run by the Davidians. After some time, Larry became suspicious of the increasingly heavy packages he was delivering. One day, he discovered by accident that one of the packages contained grenades. Larry contacted authorities, and soon after, an investigation was launched. Larry hadn't been the only one in the small town to take note of the isolated group either. The Waco Tribune Herald published the first piece of a series about Koresh titled The Sinful Messiah, which went after Koresh and the group. The paper ran the first story, much to the detriment of the secret mission the ATF had brewing, so the next day the authorities made their move. A move that would be questioned even up until now. A move I myself believe we should question. One day later, on February 28, 1993, five days after I was born, the ATF descended upon the Branch Davidians' property. Obviously, the hope was to catch them when they were least expecting anything, but the group had been tipped off to the ATF's intentions because of a news crew that had heard about the investigation and wanted in on the story. When the crew came across the mailman on the property, it revealed why it was there. Little did the crew know that the mailman was a member of the Branch Davidians, who then warned Koresh of the incoming ATF. Controversially, even the ATF learned from an undercover agent that the Davidians had been made aware of the mission. Some argue that the ATF should have called it off right then and there, but it didn't. Koresh's prophecies of preparing for a war would come true. Witnesses from both sides can't say for certain who fired first, but the shooting started almost instantly that day, and it didn't end until six Branch Davidians and four ATF agents died, and over 30 people, including Koresh, were injured. The unforeseen long-term result would be a 51-day siege, and even more tragedy. The following day, the FBI took things into its own hands. Very quickly, it was able to negotiate the release of more than one dozen children. But Koresh's message was clear. He was not coming out, and neither was his family. The FBI closed in with tortuous tactics, an effort to get Koresh to budge. Temperatures at night reached freezing lows, so they cut electricity to the compound. Then, the FBI used bright lights and loud noises to deprive the group of sleep. One noise was the crying sound of rabbits being killed. Still, nothing. By then, it seemed like this was about getting the remaining children out safely, but the exact opposite was about to happen. Finally, on April 19th, the FBI had had enough. It ramped up efforts with military vehicles and began driving tanks into the sides of the compound, which housed the remaining 80 or so inhabitants. It then began using tear gas for six whole hours. It's been reported that the FBI knew the adults had masks, but the children did not. The entire ordeal came to a head when smoke began coming out of a second story window. In no time, the entire the entire complex was engulfed in flames and smoke. 75 people, plus Koresh, died that day. Of the dead, Koresh, 11 of the adults, and five children were found shot to death amongst the remnants of the fire. Think about this. A religious group confronted by government officials turned into children dying horrific deaths deep in a bunker below their home as it went up in flames. These people burned alive. Why the fire started has never been confirmed. What we do know is that the government's overreach of power at the start of the siege and throughout continues to beg the question, 
Why did any of this happen? Why didn't they halt the operation when they knew it was no longer confidential? And how did a fire begin so conveniently once the feds advanced? I don't know about you, but the Waco siege is not something I learned about in school, which I think is a total shame. This should be added to the list of topics that are implemented in grade school curriculum because it's a lesson in determining when the government goes too far. We're living in a time when critical thinking is not just discouraged, but prohibited. And the damage is that younger generations don't recognize government overreach, even when it interrupts their day-to-day -day lives. In my honest opinion, I think the feds had no right to incite the Waco situation the way it did. Sure, the group was weird and there are still questions surrounding what went on behind the closed doors of the compound, but we have freedom of religion for a reason, even when that religion is extra fringe. I'm of the belief that cults should be allowed to exist. It's an American right to believe the way you want to believe, so long as you are not harming anyone. I get that there are speculations about the group, but there are so many answers we don't have. And regardless, did it all have to go down in such a final way? Scientologists have a huge case built against them from former members. They are a religious cult, hybrid, or whatever. And I don't see any feds knocking on their door, probably because it's guarded by Hollywood. But in a small town in Waco, things went much differently. The whole ordeal began because the government did not like that a group of religious people had a lot of weapons. The result was not the protection of innocent American lives. Instead, the innocent lives died a horrific death after an agonizing 51 days of intimidation and torture. There were no winners in this situation, and too many lives were lost, including the lives of children. Today, only dozens or so of Davidians exist under the name Branch, the Lord Our Righteousness. The community has never been the same. Not a fan of Koresh, I'm not defending what he stood for or what he did or didn't do when he was leading the group, but I will always stand against big government, and I think we should all be reminded of times in American history when the government crossed the line. Please support us by liking this episode and all the work that goes into Pop Docs. Comment what you thought about Waco, if you live in Waco or if you visited the museums or any of that stuff dedicated to Waco. And uh, if, you know, this has changed your mind at all on government intervention when it comes to cults. Also share this episode, share stories, and hit that save button. We're back tomorrow with an episode at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. This one is gonna be special because it is the Friday before Halloween. Um, but I think you're gonna like it. We're gonna go through all of the top serial killers from each state. It's pop culture without the propaganda every single day. I'm Alex Clark, and this is Poplitics. Hopefully you found the conservatee scalding today. Don't forget if you want to get the full Poplitics experience to follow us on Instagram at Poplitics, where you can watch the episodes and see all the fun clips. You can find me on Instagram too, at Real Alex Clark. Love you, mean it. Bye.